0: welcome back to Voices of Biotech. I'm Lottie Leinfelner and I'm a digital producer working across our Antibody and Tides portfolios. Today I'm joined by Vipha Jawa, Executive Director for Biotherapeutics and Bioanalysis at Bristol Myers Squibb. Vipha has had an impressive career across several diverse fields within the biotech and pharma industries holding senior positions at both Amgen and Merck before starting her current role, where she is responsible for leading biotherapeutic and cell and gene therapy bioanalytical function, supporting drug metabolism, pharmacokinetics, immunogenicity, and providing strategic and scientific oversight for the development of Bristol-Myers Squibb's portfolio. Today we'll be discussing her career, the importance of supportive professional networks, and having the courage to leave a role when it's no longer serving you. for joining me today, Vipa. I've gone through a quick outline of your current role and some past positions, but could you expand a bit on your career? Could you maybe tell me a bit about the journey for how you've transitioned into your current position at Bristol-Myers Squibb?
1: Sure, Lottie. Lodi. Thank you for inviting me to talk to you today about my career path. I am a biochemist by training. That was my initial uh, master's and graduate school uh, degree, but I did adapt it in a way to do more of translational work. So my thesis work was related to looking for biochemistry of macrophages and its pathology in autoimmune disease. And that kept me interested in staying in the translational field. And, and then I moved on during my postdoc, switched gears, and I decided to do completely different things. And one of them which fascinated me in early 2000s was gene therapies, which seemed very fix- fictional in you know, a but there was progress going on, and I thought it would be nice to learn more about the molecular biology and the, uh, how the viruses could insert new genes into cells. And so I did a stint of uh, four years of postdoc in uh, Institute of Human Gene Therapy and had switched gears again to a disease in ophthalmology and looking at inherited uh, disorders of of the retinal. It was a disease called Leber's congenital amurosis, and we were looking for gene therapy options for it. After that, I stayed in the gene therapy field a bit, but just uh, changed the areas of where I would treat it. So for a little bit, I was in hemophilia and then cardiovascular disease, all of them with the same concept of if there is a gene which is defective, can you replace it? Or is there a way to replace a growth factor, for example, and then treat the disease. I did make a change. I could call it a inflection point to a bigger biotech, which was Amgen in Southern California. And they were very much doing more of the antibodies and recombinant protein-based work. And the only thing common there was my immunology training. And I was able to start working on on different kinds of antibody-based products in multiple different indications. And it was a great time uh, at Amgen because they were one of the best places to be in terms of the biotech, looking at innovative ways to treat diseases from migraine to like going into like bone uh, resorption. Uh, and also a lot of oncology. So that was uh, one of the best times where I saw the span of how biologics could be used or applied across uh, the different diseases and and the mechanistic pathways and how to target them with either proteins or bispecifics or uh, adaptation of antibodies or even sometimes peptides. So definitely a great learning experience for me. And so last I would say the seven years I've been back in the East Coast and uh, between Merck and my current role at Bristol Myers Squibb, I have been uh, spending a lot of time on oncology diseases, but we have gone into the more novel next generation modalities of CAR T-cells, gene therapies. So in a way, I've, I've come back full circle and I'm doing again the gene therapy, which I started with
0: what would you say sort of first drew you towards immunology?
1: So, yeah, that goes back to my undergrad. And, you 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 know, every all of us during undergrad are still discovering, is this the right path for you? Or, like, am I even going to be uh, someone who would pursue research in an advanced way? And the only class that fascinated me during my undergrad, which was uh, uh, one of the premier courses in Delhi University uh, where I did my undergrad in India, was a new course called biochemistry and uh, they had multiple facets of it there was cell uh, biology and physiology and of course uh, there was this one semester of immunology and that just changed the way i was going to look at what my future would be so i was ready to go apply for med school that was my intent and so i was doing the undergrad in biochemistry because it would have helped me to get into med school and then i get this one science teacher who was so uh, good at Teaching immunology, which was one of the most complicated areas, too many hypotheses, too many pathways. Immunology was not uh, something which people had figured out, like uh, cell biology, for example. So, but it just fascinated the way our bodies had our ability to fight infections in many different ways, whether it was autoimmunity or whether it was a, against a cancer cell or even against a pathogens. So, so I think that would be the place where I decided maybe I should not be just doing medicine on its own, but learn more about immunology.
0: And I know that originally you had plans to have a career within academia. Could you expand a bit on why you shifted towards an industry role?
1: Well, you know, sometimes uh, you want to do something else with your life, but uh, things just don't work out. And in my case, it was more of the logistics and operations of kind of citizenship or what kind of actual papers you have to work country where you're not um, the the original resident of or nationality of so I did have that challenge and so I was at University of Pennsylvania and my boss uh, my supervisor was very keen that I continue there I had a great successful stint of four years but then as a postdoc I did want to move on to my next level role and the options were that I could go to another postdoc with my the, the visa status I had, or I could, you know, apply for a more of a scientist role, or like maybe starting an assistant professor kind of a role. However, the there were limitations, and there were also requirements that you had to be a citizen of the country to be able to do that. So, so after having a very candid discussion with my supervisor, I did decide that I have to move on and like, you know, uh, go where I could be sponsored for that kind of of that visa. And the only place I could do that was uh, in a like a private industry job who were willing to sponsor me. So that was my transition. So not my first choice. But then I would say I have not never regretted it because what I did, with my various experiences uh, from the beginning of entry level in a smaller startup to going into medium-sized and larger biopharmas, And the amount of research I could do both within the company as well as collaboration, collaboration with academic labs, I think I still felt that I did a lot
0: you kind of get the best of both worlds because you get to work with both academics and industry, I guess.
1: Yes, yeah, absolutely. And
0: I know that sort of throughout your career, you've utilised networks of professionals that you've developed for advice and job opportunities. Would you advise women early in their professional journey to nurture a network to lean on?
1: Um, Absolutely. And that has been my uh, current, one of the things that I do in my spare time is try to mentor, try to work with very early career scientists, and I'm really looking at even undergraduate students who want to decide if they want to pursue an advanced level career opportunity doing a graduate school or a master's. So I'm all for finding those places where I can work with them through different community networks or APS, for example, where we have a women in pharmaceutical science network and an early career biomedical sciences community. And so I have been using those forums to tell them that a network and a group of support group who can look out for each other and also tell each other about opportunities and sometimes do stretch roles. Uh, So anything which can take them out of their current, uh, very dedicated area of of what they did in their graduate school or postdoc and start expanding their horizons. I try to find them those uh, opportunities through my networks, but I also encourage them to always be ready with a growth mindset. Just don't think that this is your only thing you will do in your job.
0: And do you think that having that kind of support network has allowed you to make decisions and sacrifices that you might not have otherwise made?
1: I would say that when I joined the, initially the industry, I, I think my, my postdoc supervisor, I would say, was was very, very visionary. And she she wanted to me to stay on at UPenn and uh, and I totally would have done that if I had the way to do it, because one, she ended up being the, the that lab was the one who ended up with the first gene therapy for which was ever approved. But otherwise, too, she was a role model. She was a mother. She was a very accomplished scientist and a physician. And she had started her lab from scratch and brought it to that level where we were doing all this groundbreaking work. So looking at her i had a role model and then going forward in the industry i think i could have benefited initially with a better net- network which i did not have and one thing was this whole academia to industry you know transition and uh, there is always a mindset that people who come from academia are not necessarily ma- made for biotech or a pharmaceutical sector and so it took me a while to get out of that mode and i stayed in that academic mode for for a few years. But then I met someone who collaborated with me in my early time at Amgen. And this person was uh, brilliant. She was self-made entrepreneur, uh, MD who decided she's not going to go the classic route of just doing applied clinical medicine, but go and do something with her bioinformatics uh, degree. Very unique for a woman, first of all, to have a bioinformatics background and then MD and on top of that, starting her own company. So I stayed in touch with her. She was my champion. She also was very vocal in like pointing out that there were collaborations that she was doing with us and so i feel that my a lot of it was my postdoc supervisor as well as her and both of them are women and they looked out for me they also offered me opportunities visibility and that's what i'm trying to do now with the younger scientists perfect and
0: i think kind of taking on a leadership position and being aware of those challenges is incredibly important and would you say that as you've taken on a kind of leadership position, you've tried to champion and, and encourage diversity, equity and inclusion? And how have you kind of yes. gone about doing that?
1: Yeah. And, you know, the the DEI is a huge, it's an acronym everyone uses now. And but when you it comes to it, it's very uh, important to like put it in action somehow. And we face challenges. And I, I'll tell you the reason I am so into this whole like supporting early career scientists and be able to get more diverse uh, like people into that counseling is because we are finding that when it comes to hiring, we do not find people to be able to hire them at that advanced level. So we will find diversity in the early career uh, roles where uh, people are coming in from a graduate school or a postdoc and they join a company. But then if I'm looking for someone who can do a role where they manage a bigger group, i don't find the diversity i don't even find it in the job pool which i'm looking at and that tells me that we are we are promoting scientists we are we are taking diversity to a certain extent but are we making leaders or are we really like taking them to that level of making them confident that they can be um, a director or executive director and how do you get there so so my focus has been I would like to uh, find that pool of people. Where are they? Like, are they, is there a social network where we can access them or even engage them and say they're ready for this? Because sometimes they're just not applying because they do not feel that they have the right skill set. And, and half of the skill sets come with the job training and experiences. And so there is this block in mostly that the people who are, who have never done this before and so I'm just trying to get there to hire more people like those train them on the job get them ready and hopefully they we will expand on that with a lot of my peers doing the same.
0: I think that's sort of excellent work that you're doing trying to encourage women to actually apply for jobs that They maybe don't think they're qualified for, but they definitely are. And I think if there was a a man applying for it, he would definitely go for it.
1: Yeah, I, I think we have to be comfortable with the imposter syndrome, because I think women think more of that more than of our male counterparts. And uh, I just feel that a lot of the skills, yes, we need to get into a job, especially a higher uh, level job, which requires more like jump right in and uh, get work done. But uh, there's a lot that can be done. Everyone has those skills. It's just that as women, we think more and analyze more on what we don't have rather than what we have.
0: I think part of being a solid leader is being able to see that in someone. Would you say that your idea of a good leader has kind of changed as you've taken on leadership roles?
1: Yes, and it has evolved. And and I think maybe also that whom I was led by. Right. So you see a leader based on what you get in terms of your own managers or your own. And initially, I think the idea of a leader was to give direction, make sure things are done and then make sure that, you know, the job is done right. And that's it. It's, it has evolved because we have become much more collaborative, and and I had always this a mindset that you cannot be a leader unless you do the same things that your group is doing, and you just can't say, get this done, unless you have gone through the steps of what it takes to get it done. And I did get lucky initially to be able to work in that setting where I was in the lab working with my peers, and then And of course, I knew what the limitations were when things are getting stuck. Uh, So instead of being someone who is just like giving directives, being a part of that problem and getting to solve it with the group. So it's more of a leadership which requires you to help people to come up rather than like, okay, I'm going to go to my next level role, but you will stay where you are. So that kind of uh, leadership. Uh, mindset has evolved i have seen that change with the different managers i got to experience with but most of the time i changed or evolved my leadership based on my mentors because they were the ones who were more objective and uh, they had nothing to gain or lose by giving me the advice so they gave me the right advice and so i feel that apart from your managers having good mentors who can give you the advice where you're not doing things right and where you should be changing the way you work and um, even as a leader helps a lot.
0: Definitely and I know that sort of coming into probably quite a male-dominated environment as a female leader can be quite difficult sometimes. Would you say that you've ever come up against combative attitudes from the people that you've been managing?
1: I would say for most part I, I was lucky, but then, of course, you always, uh, I think even opposite is true. I'm sure my male counterparts will say that they they had the same experience. So, so I think mainly it was more of uh, a different kind of a function, not understanding what I was bringing to the table and having that dismissive attitude, which, which irritated me initially, I have to say. But then I had to go into... And again, I used my mentors to sound off, like, was it, like, accurate? Like, what was it the right thing which I was facing? Or is it me who is being oversensitive? And to stay objective... I, I just gave them that benefit that, okay, they may be not understanding where I'm coming from. And just having a one on one with these people separately did help a lot because it came, you come to know what is the reason behind it. Because sometimes in a group, when these kind of things get pushed back, no one is able to articulate what the real problem is. So I did find out it took me, it was a struggle. It, I would say that I was not ready for it to go and really ask what's going on. And so I had to get out of my comfort zone, have these one-on-ones and get to the problem, come to a middle ground. You can never, ever um, be aligned completely, but even a little bit helps. So having proactive conversations so that they don't dismiss you in a bigger meeting, they're trying to propose a, uh, something, an idea. So that helped for most part, but you know, it could be easily taken up as a subconscious bias that, oh, these are uh, some a group of just males who were trying to put you down. So it could come across like that, but then when you delve deeper, it was something else completely. So. Again, it's a perception, right, that uh, you, as a woman, you go into a meeting where you're the only person who's of, and then you're trying to p- pitch something and they push back on it and you think, oh, I'm a woman. That's why it happened. But maybe not. Maybe there was some other bigger reason for it. And that's what you have to find out.
0: Yeah. Trying to get to sort of the root cause of why there is an issue rather than just combating Assuming. it with <laughs> with <laughs> more more hostility. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. You've kind of touched on it a bit there. But would you say that there's anyone else that has really championed you throughout your career and kind of encouraged you to take on these kind of leadership roles? And what did that look like to you?
1: yeah and, and and i would say this was uh, someone who pushed me out of my comfort zone and it has happened multiple times and and it's very easy in in an industry like ours to get very comfortable and complacent and think that you have done the best you can and you're the subject matter expert and Um, You have a good group of cross-functional collaborators who are working with you and publishing is going on. Like You have a group of people whom you're in the lab whom you're working with. So it's great. I mean, it looks great. And if you're sitting in a great place in terms of your personal life, you know, why move or why change anything? So. At each of those points, which I call the inflection points of my career, when I talked to these mentors and one of them was very much like, you know, this is time to move on. You're not learning anything more. And yes, you can spend another 10 years here, but are you going to change anything on what you're doing? So and for that, you have even if you have to approach yourself You need to do that because it's an inertia which you want to get out of. So I can never forget that conversation. And I would say that person did change the way I even thought about my career going forward. So I spent a considerable amount of time in my first role. But then later on, I did decide that once I have done the role which I came to do for that organization and I also learned it will it is time to then rethink and also expand and stretch my expertise,
0: definitely, and I know that kind of part of that stretching was an introduction to the f d a and sort of moving towards more of the regs. Could you expand a little bit on that as well?
1: Yes, and interestingly, the uh, interactions with the f d a started very early in my uh, when I was still at amgen and it was great experience. I was part of our team which went to FDA for something called the ODAC committee which which is where the patients come and talk about why they need that drug to be approved. And that was an eye opener. And knowing that FDA was looking at even the piece coming from a patient and why that drug is so important and understanding what they look for in terms of a good filing or approval for a drug product, it kept me interested. And I always wanted to be going forward for my other drug products, be part of that effort where we engage the agencies, we understand where they feel the challenges are. So I started getting involved with those like white papers or interactions through innovation and quality consortiums where we had an opportunity to present to the regulatory agencies. And in all those um, uh, cases, I did make some good relationships and just making sure that I have a way to know what a regulatory mindset is rather than just coming from a drug development mindset. And this culminated in when I came back to the East Coast I was able to start uh, having regular lunch and learns uh, where we would bring uh, the new things we were doing as part of our the company uh, back to the agency as they have something called the lunch and learn where they invite people from the industry to come present. It's not about getting advice on anything. It's a very much sharing of new technologies, new information and new science. And so I did that quite well prior to COVID and that helped me and it also, in a way, Develop my team because I would always accompany a team member who was able to also go and get that exposure. And, And more recently, I've been involved more in just having conversations about cell and gene therapies because that's brand new with no much guidance because it's a brand new area. So again, helping To bring all the knowledge that we have in front so that we can also show that we are providing that input into the draft guidances and steer it to the right place.
0: And it's interesting, there seems to be a through line throughout all of this of sort of collaboration. Would you say that that is something that informs everything that you do?
1: Yes, you cannot work in a silo. And like we were told that academia, and that if you have to be successful, you need to know who your cross-functional partners are. And and as an academic scientist, I know all of us want to keep our research to ourselves, publish it and own it and then run a lab. And that mindset stays with you coming from uh, your initial training but in industry unless you collaborate unless you are even within your own company able to cross functionally know who are your team leaders and team members you c- cannot get anything done and it's it's not just about moving the program forward even for understanding a new concept Engage your counterparts because they have so much expertise and things get done much faster. The science is much better uh, in terms of quality and you learn new things. So definitely collaboration.
0: And would you say that there's currently sort of any female leaders in the industry or academia that are sort of really inspiring to you?
1: Yeah, well, I'm partial to the people whom I've worked with. So I would say Dr. Jean Bennett from UPenn, my postdoc supervisor. Uh, I would still call her as one of the best academic scientists with a translational approach. And then, of course, in uh, in the industry, I have multiple people whom I can talk about. Uh, Dr. Annie DeCroote, whom I mentioned, she's the head of EpiVax, and then Dr. Meena Subramaniam, who's uh, at Takeda's These are excellent women leaders. Dr. binod Silva from BMS, excellent leaders of the giving to the community, part of all the women empowerment networks. So definitely they are my role models.
0: Perfect. Well, I've run out of questions. <laughs> so <laughs> Is there anything else that you wanted to cover or do you think that we've got it all there?
1: I think uh, I would just say that, you know, I, I'm always, I always want to like help anyone who reaches out to me through any of the social networks or even within my own company where I am and if there are people needing my advice or if they want to be linked to someone whom I know I always try to make that effort and it takes time and you know it's not something when you're doing uh, your day job and so you have to take time out and do that sometimes in your own hours you mentioned sacrifice before and And some people, like especially my family, will say, like, how come you're still working in the the late night? Because I was given that chance by someone. So if I can even do a small connection and it changes their career, why not? Or path of their careers, why not? It, It will make me feel good later. And now I'm listening. Some people come back and tell me, like, oh, you gave me this advice. And I never remembered what I said, but they did they did quote me and it feels very good. You know, it it's also almost like I would call it uh, a way to feel good. It's like an endorphin release for your system when you do something like that and help others.
0: And it's definitely making an impact, I think, on the industry as a whole and, you know, supporting younger scientists who maybe need, they need that. And like you said, you've had that before. So it's kind of paying it forward in a way.
1: Yeah. And I don't want them to make the same mistakes I made. So that's what Uh, if someone asks me and if they say they want they want to do it I also try them to ask them to think are there other paths right so don't just keep on going in what you're doing it at least starts them thinking well thank
0: you so much for speaking with me today I really appreciate it and I'm sure that everyone listening will take something from this
1: thank you thanks so much again for the opportunity